So, um, names have baggage. Some do, anyway. And I, I know this because my, my mom was a teacher, and then she was a school director. And as a pastor, every church that I've worked with has had a school. So I've known a lot of teachers. And uh, whenever the topic has come up, every teacher who is willing to share this has mentioned that they have kind of a mental list of names that they could never name their children. <laughs> Think about that for a minute. Um, and to be perfectly honest, uh, there's a pretty good chance that my name was on at least one of those lists growing up. Because names have associations, names can tell a story, names can be a stark reminder of a, in this case, rough year. Uh, and so, with that in mind, uh, names, um, names are evocative and provocative. So, years before Jesus was born, if you remember your, your ancient history, Julius Caesar, uh, he, uh, he was a very popular and kind of a populist uh, general who, uh, after gaining immense amount of wealth, and, and popularity crossed the Rubicon and made his way into Rome. And Rome, by that point, um, was still a republic, but it was struggling. And he, in effect, took over, kind of violated what it meant to be a republic. And uh, again, if you know the story or you just know Shakespeare, um, you know that the Roman Senate wasn't really a big fan of this. People tend not to like to lose power. And so after um, a conspiracy and a plan executed, the Roman senators stabbed Julius Caesar to death. Now, when he died, there was kind of a weird, we'll say, cosmic moment, uh, because the Romans and the Greeks were incredibly superstitious. A, a comet appeared in the sky, and they took this to, to imply or to mean that Julius Caesar himself, upon his death, had been accepted into the Roman pantheon. In effect, he became deified. The process is called apotheosis. And so he was a god in their minds. Um, now, unfortunately for the Roman Empire, Julius Caesar's death did not actually solve any problems. It created... Uh, actually a, a quite a long civil war as um, factions and fractions of the empire kind of broke and fractured and fought each other. Originally there were four and uh, people vying for control of the, over the empire. Um, and it eventually came down to two, uh, Mark Antony and Octavian. Now uh, Octavian is, he's a, He's an interesting guy, uh, absolute genius. Uh, he was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Uh, the Romans would adopt adults. They wouldn't adopt children. And by adopting an adult, you effectively became their child. Uh, but it allowed men with power to pick their successor. 
So you can imagine that there is a lot that's been invested in this Octavian. So over the course of, of years, Mark Antony and, and Octavian duke it out. And uh, following the Battle of Actium, the very famous Roman naval battle, Mark Antony realizes that he's been defeated, Octavian has won. And so he on his ship and um, um, Elizabeth, I mean uh, Cleopatra, that joke will never get old. Um, I, I will say it every single time I say the word Cleopatra. Uh, they sail back to Alexandria where they take their fate into their own hands. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Octavian wins. He wins the day. And he's a political genius. So unlike his adopted father, he, he kind of manipulated the system a little bit better. Uh, and so he became more or less the first Roman emperor. The first among equals, he would call himself. But curiously enough, he also found it very, very, shall we say, useful that Julius Caesar, his adopted father, was considered a god. And so you can find in Roman coinage and in other kinds of writing and imperial propaganda that Octavian, now taking on the name Caesar Augustus, was the son of a god. Not only that, but because the, the Roman world, and for, if you're Roman, that is the entire world for all they care. It's narcissistic, yes, but that's how they are. Um, he saved the world. He saved the world from, a, from a, a really, really dark and brutal civil war. He was the great bringer of peace. Now, anywhere, uh, uh, ranging from uh, Roman authors and inscriptions that we have very much found, uh, it was kind of thought that all of human history was building up to this climactic moment. Uh, one inscription in particular said that providence in all her wisdom was leading up. It was like this adventus or advent of the revelation of the great savior of the world, Caesar Augustus, the bringer of peace. Now, um, if you know anything about history, um, and it's fine if you don't, you would know that, that uh, he has a very funny definition of peace. It's peace as long as anyone who might challenge him is dead. It's peace so long as nobody steps out of line. It's peace so, that as, so long as everybody knows who's really in charge around here. Peace through violence. Peace through destruction. Peace through appealing to and executing the worst that human nature has to offer. And it's astonishing because he was successful. Caesar Augustus was a genius. Names have baggage. Luke, um, educated, uh, an educated writer. As he is starting to tell the story of the birth of Jesus... It is not a coincidence that he frames it around the decision made by Caesar Augustus. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that all the world is to be taxed or registered. It's the same thing. 
He's not giving you a play-by-play or the reason why they, were, they had to make their way down to Bethlehem, as important as that is. But I think he's cluing his readers in that there are darker, shadowy figures in the backdrop. The most powerful man in the world, and it's not even close, makes a decision And a young couple, she's pregnant, have to make the 70 to 100 mile, depending on exactly where they're living, uh, trek down to Bethlehem in a backwoods part of the empire uh, that was known for being kind of violent, kind of troublesome, and, and always sort of on the edge of popping off into just revolt. Now, by, by framing the story this way, by just sort of having it in the backs of, of, of his readers' heads, Luke is very subtly setting up a conflict. Now, we sometimes miss it because, obviously, the phrase Caesar Augustus sounds more like a Jeopardy question than the most powerful man in the world threatening everything. Um, But it was a very real issue for the earliest Christians. Because Caesar Augustus, um, like I said, he found it very politically useful that he was considered the son of a god. His successor, Caesar Tiberius, would do the same. And so would Claudius, and so would Nero, and so on and so forth. It turns out if your goal is to maintain power it's really useful if people think that you're the son of the divine. This is part of the basis for the conflict between those earliest Christians and Roman authorities. But I think it's more than that. I mean, yes, uh, the Christians will historically be very odd and difficult for the, uh, the certain Roman authorities to manage. As it turns out, if there's a group of people who live with, under a very different set of values, values that would lead them to rushing into a city that is struck by the plague so that they could nurse people back to health before they contracted the plague and died. People that that actually didn't care who your family is. They didn't care what languages you spoke. They didn't care what your ethnicity was or where you were from or whether you had money or whether you were born a slave. They just didn't care because their whole existence was oriented around loving their brothers and sisters. That as it turns out, they are a very difficult people to control. And that bore itself out in different ways over a couple of centuries. Um, You know, until one of the Roman emperors actually becomes a Christian. (laughs) Uh, We win. (laughs) But it's more than just a political story. Uh, The New Testament is very political in that sense. But it's more than just a political story. Because this appeal to power, this desire to control, um, 
the desire for influence, the desire to take what's mine, to live by, by the rules of wealth, is part of the sickness of the human experience. It's not just, okay, really powerful politician, you know, backwoods, um, backwoods couple giving birth to a son that nobody had ever heard of or anything like that. It's, it's, it's more that you have a person that represents the worst in us and under his power, you have a person who is born who is truly the best of us. That's the conflict of the biblical narrative. That is why Christmas is a poignant moment in history that we come back to every year. I mean, yeah, it's, it's nice to give presents. It's, um, I would say it's nice to have eggnog, but I've tried it and I just can't. It just, um, I don't know. It's nice to gather as family and cook a good meal. I got a rack of lamb sitting in my fridge. I can't wait. Um, but you see, you see in the movies that, that uh, culture produces, uh, trying to encapsulate that true Christmas spirit, and 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 it just it they never quite get there, un, unless unless the story that they're telling is about the one who was born very, very intensely vulnerable in a very dangerous and hostile world who truly represents the best of humanity. Now, even then, that's just a nice story. That's a, the, the story of Superman is honestly very similar. <laughs> That you can laugh at that. It's kind of funny. It's, um, you don't have to laugh. Because if Jesus were born and the stories about him were just that he, he did all of these things and he performed these miracles, neat. That's great, I guess. But we're standing 2,000 years apart and a very, very long distance away from this moment. Because it really isn't the fact that Jesus performed miracles or was deeply compassionate and kind, or even the fact that he had this weird tendency to give life to the people that he encountered. Um, we've got other stories of people who did similar-ish things, maybe not to the same degree, but close enough. Because that's also not exactly the story that the Bible tells about Jesus. Jesus, God incarnate, God walking around in flesh, wearing sandals, having things like eyes and ears and a nose and muscles and ligaments and all the other things that humans have, taking on the human experience and taking on the danger and the threat that looms under folks like Caesar Augustus, who appeals to the literal worst that we have to offer. 
only to realize that much to the dismay of his fellow Judeans and Galileans, he was not interested in the power that he could have he could have taken. He wasn't interested in the wealth. He wasn't interested in all of those normal stories that we ourselves are always tempted to buy into. And we are. Because instead, he gave it all up. He realized pretty early on that if he were going to take his mission his goal, like if he were going to live out who he truly was as fully God and fully divine and he's truly going to take on the mantle of the story of Israel, God's chosen people, and be exactly who they were always meant to be, that it was going to result in a collision course with some of the darkest things that lurk within the hearts of human beings. And he was going to collide with the powers that be, the religious and political authorities, and if we're being really deep, the darkness that pulls the strings from behind, the, the shadowy powers. And it was going to cost him everything. We're here because he was faithful to that. That his faithfulness, whereas we as human beings, broken and sinful, have a tendency to be faithless. That if he is the one true faithful one, taking on our story, redeeming our story, that's, that's somebody worth celebrating. I'm willing to bet that everybody here has those moments in life, those moments of memory that trigger in our minds when we're, I don't know, checking out at the grocery store or we're shopping on Amazon while we're at work because we don't feel like working or whatever, we have those moments where we are reminded of, those of when we blew it, when we were faithless, or when the, the call of authority, the call of control, the call of manipulation, the call of wealth took precedence over who we know we really are or who we know we ought to be. We all carry that guilt. It's part of the human experience, the brokenness of what it means to be human. The parts that we wish desperately we could do over again. We all carry that regret. And if Jesus were just a nice guy who was deeply compassionate and and strangely enough, could perform miracles, and that was it. It, it, doesn't, it. it doesn't change the regret that I hold. Those moments of shame that remind me and want to tell me who I really am. But in a weird cosmic way, 
if this Jesus whose birth we celebrate tonight is the one through whom my life and my life's story is being retold, well, that's different. Because the way that Jesus lived, the way that he went to his grave willingly, taking on that, we'd call it vocation, or that mantle, or what it means to be part of God's chosen people, representing all of humanity, means that all the threads and themes and stories of my life and your life make their way through Jesus. This is what it means to be baptized into Jesus. We're buried with him. We experience that death with Jesus. And as Paul the apostle would later say, we are raised in new life. The stories that should be told about us, the stories that we should tell about ourselves, the stories that, are, that are, appeal to the darkest parts of us, the stories that would, we could represent in folks like Caesar Augustus are now being retold through the lens of the great storyteller. The, the one who is willing to give himself up to death for us, to wash away, to, to renew the darkest parts of our heart that are dead, to bring that new life, that same animating force that called Jesus out of that tomb has been placed in our hearts, which means those moments of shame and guilt and regret where we have fallen prey to the darkest parts uh, of, our, our, of our lives, the, the, the temptations that call to us, that those moments are actually a lie. Because our stories are no longer the stories of those who are unfaithful. But instead, those stories are being told through the life of our Redeemer whose birth we celebrate tonight, uh, who, whose life we can join ourselves to or be joined to in our baptism, who offers the promise of redemption and new life. Well, if that's what he did, then, then absolutely I'll celebrate his birth till the day I die. Because he died for me and you. Amen. And Merry Christmas.